This is the Sound the Foghorn Podcast. And shoved by Hayda. Spurgeon's in. Delays. Shoots one. He scores! Jared Spurgeon has tied it. Your number one podcast for the Minnesota Wild. Proud to select with the ninth pick in the 2020 draft from the Ottawa 67s of the OHL, Marco Rossi. Covering their prospects, the NHL, AHL, news, notes, and much more. Fiala's in for Minnesota. Fiala cuts to the middle. Wait, scores! Greenway in. Saved by Miska. Rebound. Erickson. They score! Jordan Greenway beats Miska. And poked away Kaprizov. In for a chance to win it. He scores! Kirill the thrill. Now, here are your hosts. Brett Marshall, Zeke Boya, and Justin Buck. Hello, everybody, and welcome in to Sound the Foghorn Season 3. Episode 7. This is probably going to be one of our most fun episodes for sure that we've done so far, maybe ever. Scott Wheeler, prospect writer of The Athletic, will be joining us here in about probably about 15-20 minutes into the show. We're going to run down uh, some of the normal stuff here first before that. But guys, very exciting night. We get to do this. We get to talk to Scott and then immediately following that we get to watch uh, the Wild play the Anaheim Ducks. So how's it make you feel, Zeke? How you doing tonight, my friend? Uh, doing very good. I mean, like you just said, we're really excited to have uh, Scott on the podcast here in just a little bit here, and uh, and obviously with the Wild playing back, uh, we're hoping, uh, you know, just uh, hopefully everyone's, you know, back up to health and hopefully, uh, you know, entertaining uh, night of hockey here. And Justin, what about you, my friend? I know you jumped on uh, 10K rinks yesterday. It was great to hear you on there. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing good. Just kind of had a long day, worked, and Looked at some houses, and now really, really excited for this episode with uh, Scott and, and be able to talk hockey with you guys. Yeah, it's going to be a blast, but we have Scott coming on here really soon, so we're going to jump right into things here. Justin, we'll throw it back to you here uh, with whatever you have for a prospect update. Um, I know the guys in BC uh, had a heck of a weekend, so maybe you can start there. Yeah, there's not much of a prospect update this week, but, uh, you know, Boldy did have a big five-point weekend, uh, five-point game on Friday. Scored one goal, four assists. Um, was hockey East player of the week. He was co-player of the week, actually. And then Nestorenko and McBain both had a goal and assist on Saturday. Uh, McBain ended up with the game-winning goal. Uh, Nestorenko now has five multi-point games on the season. Uh, McBain has a six-game point streak, and then I think the biggest news is uh, Murat Husnadinov hurt his shoulder. He's out for four months. Um, wishing uh, the best, best for him and quick recovery. And then with Iowa, uh, Beckman scored his first career goal and ended up scoring the game-winning goal against Rockford. Gordiev got his first assist of the season, and then Damian Drew also got his first uh, goal, first uh, pro point. So that that's basically it for the prospect update. And uh, yeah, that's it. Not a not a bad week for Wild prospects, and uh, we'll talk about this in just a minute as well. But Callan Addison, who was a guy I did not think would be debuting this season, got a got his first look and looked pretty good. But more on that in a bit. Zeke, any uh, thoughts on? the prospects before I jump into our analytics segment for today? Uh, no, not really. Just, uh, you know, just unfortunate to see another guy who's going you know, to get hurt. But, you know, like we've talked about last week, a lot of them are young and seem like, you know, for the most part, they're all performing pretty well. So, yeah, no, not much else for me. All right. So we'll keep tabs on them and keep you guys up to date. Uh, today for our analytics segment, we're going to dive into high danger chances, which I think will come pretty easily to everyone, um, especially compared to previous. I think I started off hard and have gotten easier uh, as we've gone on. But the best way to think about a high danger chance is basically the closer a shot attempt is to the net, the more dangerous 
the shot is. There's a graphic from Natural Stat Trick where I get a lot of my advanced stat data that I'll post to Twitter that you can kind of look at me while listening to this to make make a little more sense. But basically, they have a diagram of you know an offensive zone, and there's three different shades of color in that chart. Um, basically, the first area is yellow, and it highlights basically the entire area of the offensive zone that isn't the slot. So the area between the dots and the crease that goes up to about the tops of the circle. So it's all the surrounding area behind that. Next in is the pinkish area, which is basically anywhere that I consider to be the slot. So in between the hash marks up the top of the circles, it might even go as far out as to kind of about the face-up dots on the circle. And then there's an aqua area um, that's basically uh, where I would like to call Zach Parisi's office, basically right on top of the crease, um, practically standing you know, on top of the goaltender. Um, and then when shots are taken, they're assigned a point value depending on which of these areas they're shot from. So obviously the yellow area further out is worth one point, pinkish area is worth two points, and then the aqua area is worth three points. And if a shot attempt gets you know, two or more of these points, uh, it is considered to be a high danger chance. So another way to think of this is if, a sh if it's shot you know, in that zone, it counts, and then points can also be awarded um, if it's one point each, if it's either off the rush or uh, on a rebound. So Basically, a good way to think about it is, is if, you know, it's a shot in the slot, off the rush, or on a rebound, it's a high danger chance. It's kind of the long story short. And like many of the other stats before this, it's counted in high danger chances for, against, and then also as a percentage. It's a sum, nothing complicated with the math. And then when looking at players, it's not tracked individually from player to player, but rather how many of these occur um, while the player's on the ice, like uh, Corsi or expected goals. This is a stat where the Minnesota Wild have really excelled this season, um, both generating and limiting. They currently <laughs> lead the NHL with a high danger chances for percentage of 61.1%, which is almost 2.5% higher than the next closest team, which is Vegas. And then they also have the fewest high danger chances against with 91, which leads the league by almost 20 chances, which we can take with a slight grain of salt, um, considering you know, um, that they haven't played as many games as some other teams. But um, they're, they're the only team that hasn't reached the triple digits yet, so that's pretty cool. Uh, Ryan Suter leads the Wild in high-danger chances with 48, uh, followed closely by Eck, who has 44, Dumbo with 43. On the flip side, Parisi with 27, Brodeen 24, Kapris, uh, Kaprizov with 23 are on, have the most high-danger chances against I'm going to attribute uh, Caprice's higher number to playing a lot with Parisi, who I've been very vocal, has been dreadful defensively. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Bonino, Felino, and Eriksenak have been on the ice for the fewest high-danger chances against. And one more tidbit, Yul Eriksenak's 73.4% high-danger chances for percentage is best on the wild and eighth-best in the NHL among players who have played at least 100 minutes. If you bump that up to 200 minutes, he's the fifth-best in the NHL behind the likes of uh, a one Kale McCarr and Connor McDavid. So that's high danger chances. It's a really good way to measure, you know, the effectiveness of shots and seeing which players are getting to those dirty areas mm -hmm. and creating really good scoring chances, which I think it's a stat that usually will kind of pass the eye test as well. Yeah. Cause I mean, you know, a lot of times I think in general, people will just look at simply, you know, shots on goal, like the, playing amount like you know if there's 30 40 whatever and say okay well you know they must have been dominating the game and i just think it's a like we said with a lot of these uh, kind of stats analytics that you brought to the show in this segment just it's a another even you know just another better way of uh you know just looking at scoring chances and you know how how you know how i'm a good of a chance it actually really was so for sure yeah, this one's pretty straightforward and then um it is kind of a confusing abbreviation. It's long. It's four letters. Um, high danger chances for is abbreviated by HDCF, and then against is HDCA, and then percentage is HDCF percentage. So I'll throw those out there um, when you see breakdowns from intermissions and different things as well. But uh, again, it's an it's an area the Wild have exceeded at. I believe FSN um, as you even brought it up. I think Anthony Lapan has touched on it. But mm -hmm. it's an area the Wild excel, and if it's an area they continue to excel, I think it's an area we'll will hopefully lead to uh, some more goals as well. So Zeke, we'll turn it over to you here as we're uh, quickly running out of time. Um, but uh, give us uh, this week in wild history. What, what, uh, what happened? 
Yeah, so uh, for this week's uh, installment, this week in Wild History, we have uh, from a couple years ago on February 20th, 2019, so uh, two years, a couple days from now, uh, the Charlie Coyle trade with the Boston Bruins, in which the Wild traded a uh, fairly long time, Wild for the time, Charlie Coyle to the Boston Bruins, back to his hometown in exchange for now former Ryan Donato, but then uh, the prospect Ryan Donato and a 2019 fifth round pick, which just a quick note on the pick was ended up being converted by the conditions to a fourth round pick. And then it, I think ended up in the trade or something ended up uh, with the Carolina Hurricanes somehow. But, you know, obviously uh, Charlie Coyle was a bit of a, I guess, controversial player in his time in Minnesota because he was the, you know, 6'3", 210 pound, he's a big center and everyone thought, okay, this guy's going to be uh, you know, just a, a physical force going to score, you know, can score 30 goals and, you know, be a great offensive player. And, you know, he, he never turned out to be that way, but he was still a solid piece and was kind of like a point every other game player with the wild could play center in the wing. Uh, you know, maybe part of the reason his, is, you know, he, he didn't ever get to, you know, set in Minnesota was because he was constantly being shuffled up and down the lineup between position, but he was a good player and he's fit in very well in Boston. And obviously he was very good in their run to the Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final in 2019. And then, you know, everyone knows Ryan Donato was good in his first stint in Minnesota. And, and last year wasn't as good, but he scored 14 goals, you know, still scoring uh, a lot of goals in a limited amount of time. And then, obviously, the Wild traded him to the San Jose Sharks for a three-round pick this offseason. I think he's having an okay year with the Sharks. But, you know, I I just think overall that this trade, out of the ones, all the ones that Paul Fenton made, seems to get talked about the least as time goes on and to be honest the more that i look at it it's like you know it seems like the wild lost this one pretty handily when when you look at it yeah i think the big thing for me for this trade was that paul fenton should have added additional conditions to that pick where it moved up around Mm -hmm. for every round the bruins advanced in the playoffs so i think in which case that would have turned in to for sure a second round pick it may have even ended up as a first round pick but yeah, Zeke, I think you make a great point is that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, especially looking at the return for Donato, is this trade just did not seem to pan out very well, uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. for, for the Wild. So, yeah, it's it was an interesting one for sure. Yeah, and I just think, you know, because, I mean, Charlie Cole, he's not a great player, but I mean, last year he had 16 goals, 37 points, in 70 games. So he's kind of like... You know, for Boston, he's perfect. He's like the perfect third line center on kind of a contending team like that. And, you know, usually when you look around and what those guys tend to get around the trade line or whatever, those tend to be very valuable assets, especially a guy who can, you know, play center wing. So, you know, obviously, I mean, it's it's not horrible. I mean, he, Charlie Coyle wasn't going to be in Minnesota much longer after that anyways. So, but, uh, you know, yeah, the, just the, another not greatest one, but uh, pretty much the, the, you know, best kind of moment in history we had to talk about this week. Yeah, it was a busy time for uh, Paul Fenton in the month of February. Yes. When was that? I think it was 2019. Yeah, two years ago. 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Nino, and then uh, it all spiraled downhill after yeah. that. Yeah, that was... The, the Brad Hunt trade, which was fine, but then you had the potato mm-hmm. acquisition, and oh boy. Yeah, it was it's just not a fun season overall, like, you know, especially when they got kept getting beat at home they were like terrible like the second half of the year it was yeah it was just not fun at all definitely rough but uh let's get to happier things now Uh, i think it's a good time now to bring in scott wheeler of the athletic uh to talk a little bit more about uh, himself his uh, prospect pool rankings and uh, take some of our questions as well as your questions Uh, about Minnesota Wild Prospects. So without further ado, let's jump into our interview with Scott Wheeler of The Athletic. All right. Sound the Foghorn is pleased to welcome from The Athletic Scott Wheeler. He is a prospect writer for them. We're very excited to have him on the show. Scott, first and foremost, how are you doing this evening? I know it's laid out where you are already 930, but really happy you can be with us. Yeah, a little late, but no, I'm just, my day's been sort of winding down here. We've had a ton of snow in Toronto. So as I look out my front window here, we've got, I don't know, six or seven inches in the last two days. So it's been uh, a good dump as as I'm sure everyone's aware at this point. And I uh, just finished watching the Leafs game here and now hopping on with you guys. So it's been uh, just an, another day on, on the grind, I guess. Yeah, grinding you have been. You just finished up ranking 31 NHL teams prospects pool uh, where the wild came in at eighth. We'll, we'll get more into that in a second, but 
let, let's first get to know Scott Wheeler a little bit better. Uh, how did you first and foremost get introduced to hockey and kind of get into just hockey as 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 a whole? I mean, born into it is kind of the the classic answer there. I think. Um, my dad grew up playing, I, I'm the youngest of three brothers. So both of my older brothers grew up uh, playing. So I kind of grew up indoctrinated through them. Uh, they kind of played a double a hockey growing up. So I was always in the rink as, as kind of the little kid that was running around that kind of a thing. And then when the time came to, to strap them on for myself, then I got into it, started playing, played all growing up, uh, eventually coached and began coaching in high school, coached my high school hockey team, uh, while I was actually a student there, which was uh, an interesting experience and a ton of fun and challenging in its own way. And that really got me into sort of the tactic side of the sport. Uh, and then from there, it was just sort of pursuing it into university and beyond in terms of both the storytelling side. I went to journalism school at Carleton University in Ottawa. So that part of it sort of came naturally, the writing part of it, at least. And then also, obviously, on, on the sort of player evaluation side in terms of cutting my teeth uh, scouting games and working at different scouting services and then sort of working uh, quietly with a couple of teams early on and then now in my work at The Athletic, which is obviously all available publicly. So um, that's kind of been the, the the journey, if you will, for me. Um, and and now here we are today and I'm, I'm kind of in my, my dream gig at The Athletic, if you will. Yeah, so... How did that passion for scouting really go? What made you go that route? Because you said you coached, you said you played. What made that? What made you really go after that? Like, scouting is is where I want to be. Yeah, I mean, just going way back, it kind of started early for me. Started in university, and then carried through university. Eventually, it's trying to carve out a niche where you say, "Okay, I can do the storytelling." That's always been my sort of bread and butter. But then how do you take it a step further? And, and I think player evaluation is the way of doing that. There are a lot of people who do storytelling on prospects, and there are a lot of people who do player evaluation on prospects. And I've always tried to kind of do both. And I think in doing both, you can A, get to know the people that matter in terms of coaches, scouts, general managers, agents. That, that part comes through the storytelling, through talking to those people every single day. And then B, the player evaluation side is just about time. It's about getting into the rink during a regular season when I have a dedicated travel budget at The Athletic and I get to pick my road trips and hit all the major international events and make some college trips every year and make some junior hockey trips every year and that kind of a thing. And then when I'm not traveling during the year, it's about digging in on video and actually putting the time in. And I think that's where the work begins to sort of distinguish itself, if you will. I think if you can put the time in and if you can sort of be as nuanced and as detailed as is necessary to be able to cover all of the players that someone like myself or Corey try to cover in a season, then people notice that. People, I think, can see through when you've put in that time and when you haven't. And there are a lot of people that try to do, uh, and many successfully, many unsuccessfully, try to do prospect evaluation. And so I think it's just about showcasing, okay, you've clearly actually put in the time to watch these kids and not just watch these kids, but study the data, study the players and in terms of their off ice situations, learn about them, call around on them, ask agents and coaches and general managers about them and other scouts about them and try to build as broad a knowledge as you can on these kids so that when I'm on a podcast like this or when someone's in my Twitter mentions asking me a question, I can feel comfortable answering that question without having to bullshit anyone. So that's ultimately sort of the balancing act between the storytelling and the player evaluation. And hopefully at the end of the day, when a reader reads both of those things, they come away feeling like they're getting something different from the athletic than they can get somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, I think between you, Michael Russo and Corey Pronman alone, I feel like I steal money from the athletic with the quality <laughs> of journalism, just the incredible stories you're able to tell. Absolutely. I mean, we put out a thread with questions just of all the stories you've done in wild prospects alone. And I think, I think I've gotten around to reading most of them, if not all of them. Um, and they're just fantastically told. So I think your, your, your testament to putting in the work, I think clearly comes through uh, in your writing. I think the biggest progress, project you undertook as of late was your prospect pool ranking you went through all 31 teams ended up with you know 15 to 20 that you ranked and how many others that you evaluated is beyond us even but take us through kind of the inspiration behind that project and just kind of the criteria that you use to kind of build out those rankings and what you're looking for and how you kind of come to come to your ranking 
Yeah, so there there are really two parts to, to sort of the player evaluation that I do at The Athletic. There's the pre-draft, draft-eligible coverage that we do, and then there's the post-draft coverage. And I think it's important to carry that coverage that you've done and all of that time that you've spent on these kids in their draft year or even in their draft minus two years or even in some cases for them watching them play minor hockey um it's important to carry that forward if 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 you want to give the reader a full picture of these kids frankly more people care about what happens after they're drafted once they're tied to an nhl club in terms of the average fan then care about them before they're drafted. So this is kind of of that second part of that coverage. This is the culminating annual project. I do it once a year. I do it in January and February, sort of counting down after the World Juniors and at the start of a new calendar year, the 31, soon to be 32 prospect pools once Seattle enter this, enters the league next year. Um, and it's, it's about giving people as broad a scope of where their pools are at relative to the rest of the league as I possibly can. And sometimes that means being upfront about, hey, I've seen this kid play 10 times in the last year and I've seen this kid play once in the last year. Uh, sometimes it's about relying on, on other people. If there's a player from uh, an unconventional market, particularly the high school kids in the US that I don't get a ton of time and, and don't put the same kind of effort into watching, those are the kinds of players I'll often rely on other people for, their coaches, their general managers, other scouts. So it's blending all of the work I've done on these kids over the years and then trying to fill in the gaps as best as I can while also being transparent about the players that I've seen less of than others. So the, the end project is, is roughly 500, 550 players. Um, and those are just the kids that are ranked. Obviously, there's honorable mentions that I don't dive in on and that kind of a thing. But through video and through quotes from sources and then through my own evaluation, I think it gives you a pretty good sense, more or less, of, of every team's prospects. And um, it, it's definitely a mammoth. Uh, I, I think I'm, if I didn't have it, uh, this as my full-time job, if I were trying to do this as a hobby or if I was mm -hmm. trying to juggle this with other work, it would be completely undoable. No, I can't imagine. Uh, but, but because I've, I've really got the full year to dig in on this and I only have to do it once a year, it, I, I think it turns into a pretty nice picture of, of where everyone's at. Yeah, for sure. I, I think I've asked um, um, my fair share of questions there. Justin, we'll, uh, we'll go to you to kind of build off now that we have some background on the prospect pool rankings. We talked about the rankings on our last week's show, outlined those players. Wild came in at eighth. Uh, what questions, Justin, we'll start with you, do you have for Scott, maybe just about him, about his rankings, wild prospects in general? Pick it to you first. I just thought thought of one off the top of my head. How, how how different was it this year trying to do this, not being able to travel mm. with COVID as it was opposed to past years? It was a lot different. There were, It's crazy to think about, but it, because the ranking ends in, in sort of mid-February, there were kids who between when I released this ranking in 2020 and when I released it in 2021, there are kids who had only played from, in terms of new updated viewings, had only played from the middle of February of last year into early March of last year. So for some kids, they, there's only a sample size of seven or eight new games to go off, which means a lot of the rankings uh, or a lot of the player evaluation on some of those kids hasn't changed a ton. Uh, certainly I've dug in on what they did this summer and what they did for their training and things that they've changed and, and where they're at. And, and many of those kids have now gotten back to play in Europe, et cetera, et cetera. But for the OHL and the WHL kids in particular, there just hasn't been a lot of action. Um, so those kids were probably a, a little thinner than, than some of the other kids in terms mm -hmm. of the player evaluation. And then of course, I haven't been in the rink since, since last February, the last time, the last trip I did was to the university of Wisconsin for a big feature that I did on last year's Badgers team. And that would have been in February of last year. So my trip to the U18 Worlds was canceled. My trip to the Frozen Four was canceled. My trip to the Memorial Cup in Kelowna was canceled. Um, so there, there just hasn't been a lot of travel. I did the World Juniors, certainly. I went out to Edmonton this year for the World Juniors. So I guess that's a, a newer trip. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, that, the, that is really my only live hockey other than watching the mm -hmm. Toronto bubble um, from right. from the, the playoffs this summer so it, it was a it was a completely different process i grinded video 
way, way more. Uh, I think in, mm. in many ways there was actually a benefit to, mm. to, to the time that I didn't spend traveling because when I go, when I'm traveling and I'm on the road, I'm watching one game a day, right? So uh, right. this way I get to, I mean, I can sit down and I can watch a kid's shifts in half an hour. I can watch a two and a half hour game in half an hour if I'm just focusing on one kid's shifts with the scouting service that I use. So that way I can, I can watch one player play five or six times in a single sitting without going numb. Um, so that part of it helps, but it, I mean, it's a mixed right. bag. There, there's positives and negatives both ways, but this year's process was definitely significantly significantly different and there just wasn't a ton of new hockey certainly in europe mm. there was and in college hockey there's been a fair amount right. um but in terms of junior hockey in, in mm. north america it, it has just been a little bit slower to get going definitely right yeah and i guess just to kind of piggyback off that you mentioned that uh, obviously with you know, a lot of games you've been having to do a lot of more video scouting like you said that's maybe in some cases kind of helps you, but is that like a lot harder when you have to constantly watch the video instead of being there in person? Like, you know, is that, is that harder? Is that easier? Like, what's that kind of like? Yeah. Again, I think it can, I think it can kind of go both ways. Mm. Um, when I'm watching video, I tend to focus on a specific player on the ice. Uh, when I'm at a game, I, my scope is different. When I'm at a game, mm -hmm. I'm taking notes on everybody because I'm sitting there for two and a half hours or standing there for two and a half hours or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm watching every single shift. I'm watching the full game. My focus is on the ice. You can see the play develop in a much, much different way when you're in the building. Yeah. Um, so that part of it helps. The game slows down when you're in the building. I think people think that the game actually, people often have the, the reverse impression. A lot of mm -hmm. casual fans, I think, think that the game is faster in the building than it is on TV, but I would argue it's completely different, completely the opposite. Um, the, the game really does slow down when you can see what's one step ahead when you're in the rink. Um, so that part of mm -hmm. it's different. There's also distractions when you're doing video. Yeah. I mean, there's distractions when you're at the rink. You can There's the guy next to you and other people that you run into and that kind of a thing. But I would say there's more distractions when you're watching video. It's a lot easier to pop open Twitter on my mm -hmm. on my computer while I'm watching and that kind of a thing. So your focus can be drawn in all sorts of different directions. And my wife is working from home nowadays, so that there's she's constantly around and that kind of a thing. So um, that part of it is, I think it's a bit of a mm -hmm. mixed bag. Um, but the, I mean, there's benefits both ways. The efficiency of video is way better than traveling mm -hmm. to see games for sure. The time commitment, all of that is, is significantly improved. And the ability to pause and to slow down and to rewind with the scouting service that I use and to watch a play back two or three times. That way you're really not missing anything. Whereas something can happen in a game when you're in the building and 30 seconds later something else has happened and you've already forgotten about trying to think about the play that happened 30 seconds earlier. So uh, it, again, I, th I think it's a, a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, Philip Lindbergh, he's a goalie that really hasn't seen a lot of time, and you know he's kind of stuck behind Matt Murray in, in Massachusetts. Uh, you mentioned that uh, you wouldn't be surprised if he's one of the best goalies in college hockey next season um, when he gets the helm. Uh, can you see him becoming an NHL-caliber goalie, or whether it's a starter or a backup? Ooh, um, well, I think it's tough. Philip has always been a little bit difficult to evaluate just because of, of what you mentioned, the fact that the net hasn't really been his and now the clock's ticking and he's getting older and you'd really like to see a goalie with that pedigree and with the numbers that he's produced, et cetera, et cetera, play in a more consistent basis, play in a more prominent role. So next year, obviously Matt is, is moving on and the net will be Phillips. If Philip doesn't, if Philip decides not to turn pro, which I think he absolutely should stay, um, and then after that, you kind of go from there. If he mm -hmm. has a, a, a sort of remarkable year, if he's the kind of goalie who can take the net next season and post a 920 save percentage, then I think suddenly you look at him and say, okay, there, there's some interesting tools there. He's got a lot of the makeup in terms of mm -hmm. the, the way that he actually plays the position. He's got a lot of the makeup that you look for in an NHL goalie. Um, I, I think he'll yeah. be good AHL depth regardless. Uh, he's the kind of goalie I would definitely sign. Mm -hmm. I would want to work with. And then you kind of go from there. I don't think he's going to be in that echelon of prospects where Philip graduates and then suddenly it's okay. Is, mm -hmm. is he going to challenge for a spot? Is he going to be a number three goalie? Even I'm not sure that's the case, but I think if, if you give him some time, if he can get more reps and if he can continue to play like he always has, 
then suddenly you might have someone who two, three years down the line is, is a potential backup for you. I, I don't see starter upside there, but I, I, I think he can give, he can be a piece of the puzzle. He can be a backup or a number three and, and a starter with an AHL team, that kind of a thing. A couple follow-ups to that one. One, uh, this is from Wild Farm Report, a Twitter question. How would you compare like similarities, differences between him and probably the other prominent Wild goalie prospect um, and Hunter Jones? Well, Hunter, Hunter, it's a mixed bag. I, I mean, I, he, Hunter's a goalie who plays really, really well, uh, or he'll let a goal sneak through. He'll let a shot sneak through. He'll there will be a mid-danger shot that you'd expect him to save and that he should save, and then suddenly it's sliding under his arm and that kind of thing. He's the perfect Minnesota Wild goalie because that's all we've ever had here. (laughs) Yeah, and that isn't to say I don't like Hunter. I think Hunter's a a legitimate prospect and an option and another sort of good organizational depth guy and all of that. But I think there's a consistency to Phillips' game and to his positioning and to his approach Mm -hmm. and to his how compact he is in the net, uh, the way that he holds his edges. Uh, th- those things for Philip, I think, are slightly sort of elevated relative to Hunter Jones. So that would be the big difference. I love Hunter as a kid. Hunter's one of those kids where when you talk to him, he's just sort of, he's charismatic. He speaks his mm-hmm. mind. He's articulate. You can tell he's a really intelligent kid. Uh, and you don't often get that out of kids that age. Uh, so th- that part of it, I'm almost biased inherently, just because I, I honestly really do enjoy speaking with Hunter. and He's easy to pull for. Um, I, I, but I think they're both more or less kind of the same tier of goalie prospect. Like they're, mm-hmm. I don't know, they're they're both kind of that, that sort of AHL depth and you hope that they become a, a backup someday. That's the end mm-hmm. game. Right. And then one yeah, more I to think... build off this too. Um, it's just how do you evaluate goaltenders being at such a different position mm-hmm. then? Because obviously you can't look at skating and offensive IQ and defensive IQ. What kind of things you're looking for in a goalie? Well, it, I will say this up front: goalie. I mean, it's the hardest. It's cliche, but it's the hardest position to to evaluate. I mean, forwards are the easiest by a wide margin. Uh, and then defenders a slight tick below that. And then there's a large gap between them and, and goalie evaluation. And I think unless you've played the position, which I haven't, um, never played goalie growing up, uh, it, it can it can be extremely challenging. So I've tried to learn a lot from others, just asking questions of goalie coaches all of the time, uh, learning about the things that they look for. Uh, and then I blend that with my own evaluations. I think, A, one of the big things nowadays is is size. Yeah, size kind of is the be-all and end-all with goalies these days. You can make it as a five foot 11 6 foot, six foot one goalie still, but it's pretty rare. Unless you're a Dustin Wolf who is just r- ridiculously controlled in the net for a smaller goalie, or unless you're a Devin Levi, who we all saw at the World Juniors, Devin's on his feet and he's on his toes all the time. And he, despite being a very jittery goalie at times and tracking the play quickly side to side, he doesn't pull himself out of position. So I think if you're a bigger goalie, you need to be athletic. You need to still have, even if you're a little bit heavier, some of those 230, 240 pound goalies that we're starting to see nowadays in the vein of a Frederick Anderson or a Robin Lehner, those kinds of goalies. Those goalies, they, they move slower in the net. That's just the reality. But I think if they can hold their positioning, if they can hold their outside edges to control the, where they are in their net, and they can play aggressive, challenging lines on shooters and make that first save consistently, then suddenly you don't need some of the second save agility and explosiveness uh, that a smaller goalie like a Devin Levi mm-hmm. or a Dustin Wolf needs, right? So I, I, I think it's a it's a fine line. I was obviously a huge fan. If you guys have followed my my prospect or my draft coverage, I was a gigantic fan of Dustin Wolf in his draft year, despite the fact that he is generously listed at five foot eleven, six foot. Um, and, and the same with Devin. I, Devin's become a big I've become a big fan of his, so it can be done. But you look at the lead nowadays. How many Anton Kudobins and Yaroslav Halaks are there? The, the, the answer is that mm-hmm. there's only a handful, right? They're, it's very hard at that size to become an NHL goalie these days, or at least more than a, a backup NHL goalie mm-hmm. these days. So you, you have to have a special set of qualities on that side. And then, if, again, if you're big, I think it's a, a lot of it comes down to control 
and positioning. They, they all have technical ability. They, uh, most goalies have good hands these days. They can catch a lot of pucks. Um, most goalies can actually play the puck reasonably well these days. Um, so those kinds of things I'm not too concerned about in a goalie, unless it's a glaring issue where your glove hand gets exposed mm. or you're starting to get frozen by good shooters, that kind of a thing. But most most of the time I'm with big goalies, I'm looking at how technically controlled they are in their net. Do they swim? Because I think when big goalies swim, that's a red flag for me. So yeah. um, th- those are probably more or less the, the two ways that I approach looking at sort of big goalies versus small goalies. And then you try to fit them in, in relative to players, which is also extremely challenging to do mm-hmm. because there are just not that many goalie jobs available. So right. what, is the, what is the value of a backup goalie relative to the value of, say, a potential second-line center, right? It's, it's not an easy question to answer. Absolutely. Zeke, I think I might have cut you off, so over to you. Oh, well, no, just uh, anyways, just kind of moving off the of goalies, but I think the uh, guy that you seem to be fairly high on always in uh, Alexander Havanov, who was the wild third mm-hmm. on pick a couple years ago, uh, you know, obviously he was the loan over the KHL, was didn't play a lot in his seven games there. And I'm just like, you seem, seemed like a lot of other people, uh, including uh, your, other, your colleague at the Athletic, Corey Promen, wasn't as high on him still in his recent his prospect rankings last fall. And other people seemed to kind of be a little more down into Like, what do you still see in him that believes you to think that he can still be a, you know, a, a NHL producer here in the future? Well, I think outside of his conditioning and his skating, it's all there, right? So. Mm-hmm. Then it's the age old, and you guys have been through this with Dmitry Sokolov, but oh, yeah. it, it, then it becomes yeah. the age old issue of can he get into better shape and can he mm-hmm. get a little bit quicker out there? I, my argument would be that Havanov is a much, much more talented player than, than Sokolov was, right? Sokolov yeah. was a great player in junior, um, but mm-hmm. there were more red flags earlier on with him than there have mm-hmm. been with Havanov. Havanov's definitely a little heavy. He carries a lot of weight out there for his size. All of that is true, and he needs to work on that, and he needs to play with a little bit more pace. But in terms of his ability to handle the puck, to problem-solve, that lethal one-timer of his, even his wrist shot, his playmaking touch on the perimeter, all of those things are NHL quality. So I think part of it with Havanov will come down to him in terms of getting in better shape and getting a little bit quicker. And part of it will probably come down to perception. I think with some of those players, the way that they're perceived can actually do more harm to them than, mm-hmm. than their own play. Uh, and I think he's perceived at this point as kind of a boomer bust type when maybe he shouldn't be that perceived that way. I, I, mm-hmm. He's still young. You've still got time. It's not like this kid is 22, 23, 24 years old yet. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, I'd like to see him play in the AHL. I'd like to see him play in a top of the lineup, power play one, first or second line role in the AHL, and then mm-hmm. you go from there. And, and in time, I think his talent could overcome and could sort of push him into a role in an AHL lineup where he's a scoring threat, he plays on your second power play unit, and he's kind of a complementary offensive player inside your top nine. And Maybe he's not going to be a star player, but I still think once mm-hmm. you get outside the three or four prospects that – that good teams have in their prospect pool that that project as those star mm-hmm. types and you get into that sort of second B level grade of prospects he's he's firmly in that group in terms of everything that he's got going for him and all of the kids who are also in that group typically have challenges that they face and mm-hmm. and he's not immune to that either so the, each of these kids have warts once you get outside the the very upper echelon prospects mm-hmm. and i think on the balance of probabilities, he's got a good opportunity to still become what I think he's capable of becoming, which is that sort of middle six winger, middle six center who can kind of make a lot of plays. Yeah, and it's a, he's a little bit different type of player, but I think Minnesota Wild fans, especially this year, have seen you know just how valuable a good middle six guy can be. We look at guys like Jewel Erickson Eck and Jordan Greenway, who have really come into their own this year, and they're not necessarily. I don't think anyone really looks at them as top line guys, but the impact they make as second and third liners has been great. So I think that's a really good point you made about just, you know, just because you're not a first line doesn't mean you still can't be uh, extremely valuable. So, Yep. <clears throat> All right, I can go next here. Um, so a lot of, we got a lot of comments just from fans, and I think we even discussed this on our own about the omissions of Connor Duar, Dewar, and Brendan Duheim from your rankings. I know your colleague, Michael Russo, it's kind of been two guys he's kind of talked up a little. So perhaps that's maybe yeah. where that comes from a little bit. Um, but can you speak to just, you know, maybe why you're down on them a little bit? Um, 
or is it more a testament just to the the, the depth of the wild prospect pool? I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, I, I think I see both guys as kind of that tweener. And mm. when I put together my prospect pool rankings, the end game is always talent and upside and players who, however slim that that chance is, players who have an opportunity to maybe mm. play a little bit higher up the lineup than those sort of replacement level players that can slide in and out of a fourth line or in and out of a third pairing. So with Duar and Duheim, I, I, I think both of those kids kind of fit into that weird middle ground and they're not really kids. I mean, they're, they're all already a little bit on the older side, but mm. I think both of them kind of fit into that weird middle ground mm. where can you plug and play them in the NHL? Sure. But what, what value are they giving you relative to any sort of, eight hundred nine hundred thousand dollar player that's available in free agency every summer right like Mm. where's the elevation where do they upgrade your roster and i'm just not sure that either of those kids have the talent or the pace or the sort of overall skill set to be able to do more than be a very good ahl player who can fill minutes in the nhl almost like a jerry mayhew in a way too it's a guy who like seems like we were clamoring for him to get up here last year and he got to the NHL and it's like, well, maybe he'll just be a really good AHL player. Yeah. All right. Great. Uh, Justin, you got another question for Scott? Yeah, I was going to bring up Philip Johansson. I feel like he's gotten a lot of flack just kind of from where he's been drafted by Wild fans. Mm-hmm. Uh, he recently he had like eight points in eight games and he seems to be shooting the puck more. Is this more of a hot streak or is he developing to something that could be maybe like a, a third pair demon for the wild in the future? I think it's a steady progression. I mean, he's playing on a good team. He's playing mm-hmm. minutes. He's a factor at both ends. Uh, the, the things about his game that have always been good, which is kind of that he's not bad at anything. Those mm-hmm. things remain true. Uh, he's not a liability. Um, he, he doesn't turn the puck over a lot. His skating isn't an issue, so there aren't red. There aren't sort of big, big red flags. The question with Philip mm-hmm. was always, okay, is is what's a, what's above his base level? Like, what's that next mm-hmm. echelon? What's that next level look like for him? And can he reach it? And then when he was slower to reach it relative to where mm-hmm. he was drafted, then the panic button gets hit and mm-hmm. people start to sort of hyperbolize yeah. mm-hmm. about who he is. So I, I think part of it just came, comes down to the fact that he was drafted way, way, way too high. Um, and then everything right. since then has been relative to that, right? So I think he's been good this year. He's playing with more confidence. He's looking to activate right. off the line some more, which is nice to see. Um, he's looking to shoot the puck more, as you mentioned. Uh, and he just looks a little bit more comfortable with the puck on his stick and comfortable in who he is. And sometimes confidence just gets ripped out of these kids. And I think that's what happened to him in the two years prior. Uh, he, mm-hmm. he just lost himself yeah. in there and lost himself in everything that was going on around him. And uh, now he's starting to get back on track. Mm-hmm. Now, is that, I mean, the million dollar question is that you guys don't really care unless he's going to become an NHL player. So, um, I don't know is the, is right. the honest answer. Um, I, I I still think he's in a weird yeah. sort of spot as a prospect where there's nothing about his game that I think really screams NHLer. Uh, but that doesn't mean he doesn't get there. There are yeah. all sorts of kind of no fuss, laissez faire, just quietly efficient NHLers mm-hmm. that are making it nowadays. And increasingly, production for defensemen yeah. is being devalued as teams just look for players who can defend and advance the puck and get the puck into their forwards' hands and. Uh, skate well and he's a good skater so that helps so there there are yeah. some pieces there I, I just he he's another guy who I think you've got to get him over play him in the AHL and then go from there if he can become yeah. one of the one or two or three best players on a group of six in, in the AHL on on the back end then suddenly he's a call-up option yeah. and he's interesting mm-hmm. right so until that happens I, I yeah, just think right. you can't get ahead of yourselves with him yeah, well, I think the important thing is, too, is you look at the Wild Blue Line as it sits right now. They have, right now, an established top four. They have a guy that's probably going to fill in as this, as this for Matt Dumba eventually and Callan Addison. Um, so there's no pressure for him to be a top four guy, so I think that might help, too, in the sense no. that he doesn't need to be anything more than a, than a third-pairing guy, necessarily. Yeah. All right, we have time for maybe just one or two more here. Uh Let's see. I'll, I'll, I'll do one here from uh, Twitter. We'll go with uh, another wild one here. Um, this one is from uh, Kaprizov Club. 
Um, and he's wondering, who do you think is the biggest sleeper in the wild prospect pool? Or maybe a guy that you have high hopes for, maybe someone that you're lower or higher on than kind of the consensus. Who would, who would you say is kind of a sleeper for the wild? Ooh, um, uh, I would have often argued Vladislav, uh, first off, that is. Um, mm-hmm. But it's been a little bit of a weird year for him, so I'm not sure where I stand on first off in terms of a, a firm evaluation at this point. He was brutal in a limited role at the World Juniors. Um, obviously, he's been much better at UConn. He's a player who I think has a lot of pro qualities uh, and mm-hmm. could sort of sneak his way into the lineup someday. Uh, he's also very young, so he's, he's, he's played at the college level very early uh, and had success at the college level very early, which is a big deal. Uh, as far as others, um, I'm not sure. There, there, there aren't really any – I mean, the, the big guns are the big guns. I think Ryan O'Rourke is a great piece. I think Adam Beckman is interesting. Marat's interesting. I, once you get a little bit further down outside of Vladislav, I was really high on, on Jack McBain in his draft year, and I think Jack has looked more like the player you'd hope he'd, he'd look like mm. this year, which is a big deal for him. He's starting to come along. Oh, yes. His feet are, don't look quite as heavy. Uh, he's making more plays. He's playing with more talented players. So all of that's starting to happen for McBain. So I think McBain's worth keeping, uh, keeping an eye on in that way. And then one who I think is a ton of fun to watch, I'm not sure whether he'll ever play in the NHL, but Marshall Warren is just mm-hmm. fearless out there. He's confident. Yeah. He, his, he's, he looks better out there than his stats have always indicated. Uh, and I think he's the kind of player who show, who could show really well in practices and in training camps and in that kind of thing once he turns pro and maybe surprise some people and have a coach who falls in love with his ability to skate and his willingness to attack and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure whether Marshall thinks the game well enough to, to be able to execute with all of that talent and that ability, mm-hmm. but Marshall's a really fun player to watch. Like I just love watching him play. So that's another player on top of McBain and, and Vladislav that I would probably keep an eye on. Yeah, we we very much enjoy watching Boston College with uh, McBain and Boldy and Nestorenko and, and Warren there. It's, uh, mm-hmm. so we, we Nestorenko have, has frankly had a better year than I expected he would. So Yeah, he's been a real pl- yeah, pleasant surprise. He's, yeah, it's, he's pretty, been... it's pretty cool being a college hockey fan in Minnesota because we have basically a bunch of our local teams are up there. And then we have, we've dubbed them the BC Wild basically. Um, <laughs> even even yeah. it goes. Through, I, believe, I think Garen's a BC alum as well. He is. They're either so. the BC Wild or the BC Avalanche. So yeah, yeah, yeah with New Hope and, and uh, from teammates to rivals game. in the future. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it'll make for uh, it'll make for good entertainment. Uh, guys, do you have any other ones here? I can crowd them out from Twitter. Yeah, well, I guess just I have a question from Twitter that I'm kind of curious to see your answer. But uh, Derek Felska essentially asked that. You know, in the Wilds prospect pool, like what are what's kind of an area that they're like lacking that you see that you know maybe they should start going for? Because I know that they've seemed to have a lot more in terms of forward depth in there, but uh, what do you think is kind of the area that's lacking in there? I would say they're a little thin, if you will, uh, on defense. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Kalen is 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 great. I I love him. Yeah. yeah, he was ranked in the first round in his draft year on my board. I thought he was a fabulous pick for Pittsburgh at the time. Uh, so I think Kalen's going to be a really nice piece, a really sort of good, mm-hmm. maybe maybe not a number two or a number three, but a really good number four or number five who can run one of the power play units. Um, but mm-hmm. after that, I mean, I touched on Ryan O'Rourke, who I think has a chance to become, again, that kind of five, six type, mm-hmm. maybe a, a good number four in his prime. Um, so those two kids are, are, are decent bets. I mean, at Kalen, we already know that he's close, and I think Ryan's... Uh, got a medium odds at, at becoming a good NHL player. But after that, it really does start to thin out. We talked about mm-hmm. Philip and Marshall, but Philip and Marshall are, I mean, they're long shots, right? They're, yeah. they're still in that sort of long shot mm-hmm. tier. And uh, Damon Hunt's a player who I'm a little bit lower on than a lot of people. And, and I just, I, I still need him to convince me that he's as good mm-hmm. as, as some scouts think he is. Um, so I'm not sold on Damon Hunt either. So it, that's, I think, more or less where they're thin. Certainly, and you could look at goalie and say, hey, Kapanen and uh, Hunter Jones and Philip Lindbergh, and th- those are all three of those guys probably aren't going to be, st- you're probably not going to get a starter out of that group, but mm-hmm. you can say that about virtually every team. There's only seven mm-hmm. or eight goalie prospects in the world right now that I'm comfortable projecting mm-hmm. as a starter. So I wouldn't say they're necessarily thinner than any other, or than the average team, at, at least at, the, at that position, but definitely at on defense, 
once they graduate at Addison full time, and obviously he's starting to get a taste now, but once he's sort of playing every night, mm-hmm. if Ryan O'Rourke's your number one D prospect, then you're, you're probably a little bit thinner there. Yeah, I know one thing we're hoping in terms of goalie depth is that uh, perhaps Jesper Wolstadt is you know available in the wild, have one of the <laughs> first round picks. Uh, there's, one those, there's one of those seven or eight guys <laughs> yeah. that I'm pretty comfortable with. So. We're keeping our fingers crossed on that. Maddie Beniers is the hopeful long shot, but I don't know if uh, we'll get lucky enough for that. But I think we have time for one more question here, Scott, and it's been one that's kind of been you know among the NHL headlines as of late, and that's kind of the status of the 2021. NHL draft. We've seen a whole bunch of scenarios from, you know, pushing it back to December to doing two drafts next year. From your standpoint and the people you've talked to, what do you feel is kind of the consensus of what, you know, management and people like that want? And then also, you know, what would what would your preference look like? <laughs> well, my personal favorite is not to wait. Uh, if I have to write about the 2021 NHL draft class for another year and a half, <laughs> Uh, I'm going to run out of things to say and players to write about. So uh, I would, I mean, for completely selfish reasons, I think it would be great if the 2021 draft happened this summer and we kept on a regular schedule. I think that's definitely Seattle's preference. Seattle wants to be able to get a lot of those kids into their group this summer rather than wait and do both of the drafts back to back in 2021. But there is an appetite. There's it's, it's real. There, there is definitely an appetite among some teams to push it back a year and to do the 2021 and 2022 draft on sort of a marathon back to back weekend kind of thing, uh, a, a full summer after this summer. So the part of the appetite for that, I think makes sense. This draft class just isn't a draft class that has, players who are going to immediately step into the NHL. Um, so mm. there's no there's no Connor McDavid, there's no Austin Matthews, there isn't even an Alexi Lafreniere or a Jack Hughes those, or Rasmus Dahlin, those kids who you said, okay, this kid's mm. going to be penciled mm. into the NHL lineup day one of next year, right? So the teams that are drafting at the top, I don't think are going to be too fussed about the fact that they don't get to incorporate those players into their program right away if they have to wait mm. a year because a lot of those kids just need more time and the pandemic has made it worse and it's not a strong draft class at the top. So that is part of the conversation, but I still think they're going to do everything in their power to host it this summer. Um, I I think ultimately a lot of the talk will just be talk uh, and NHL teams when push comes to shove will be comfortable with having the draft this summer. The OHL and the WHL I do think are going to get back. The WHL is happening. That's a, a done deal at this point barring some uh, serious outbreaks among teams. I think they're, they're, they're all in on that at this point. The OHL is a different story, right? It's still mm-hmm. slow. They're still trying to figure right. it out. And the longer this goes and the worse COVID gets as we enter what's likely to be a third wave um, in April with these, these new variants that are really starting to pop up, it's going to be hard for the OHL, I think, to convince the Ontario government to, to make this happen. So... I don't know. It, it, it's going to get sticky. Um, and can you draft uh, some of these kids out of the OHL without hardly having seen them play? Certainly mm-hmm. Brant Clark and Francesco Pinelli and some of the top OHL players, uh, Danil Chaika, et cetera, they've gone over to Europe and played. Mm-hmm. So not all of them are without games, but there's still so, mm-hmm. so many of them. Uh, Mason McTavish only just went over recently to play in Switzerland. So it, 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 there's a lot of kids still that aren't going to be getting many games if the OHL season doesn't happen, and then it's going to make it very hard to pull off a 2021 draft. So I don't know. The simple answer is I think it can go either direction. But I do think pressure will mount to host it this summer, though, uh, and to, to figure it out and to just do it and get it over with. So we'll see. Yeah, that will definitely be an exciting storyline to kind of pay attention to uh, as, as we move forward. But Scott, I think we won't keep you any longer here. Uh, we thank you so much for uh, for joining us and, and being a part of, you know, Sound the Foghorn. It was a pleasure to have you. Uh, Justin or Zeke, do you guys have uh, anything uh, anything you want to say to Scott Dub before we let him go here? Oh, we really do appreciate you joining us on this and, and taking the time to, no, uh, no problem at all. to talk prospects with us. No problem at all. You can find Scott on Twitter at Scott C. Wheeler, and of course you can read all of his awesome work uh, on The Athletic. Um, just look under Scott Wheeler under Authors. We also have a thread on our Instagram page 
uh, outlining a ton of stories he's done on Wild Prospects. So, Scott, thank you so much again for joining us, and uh, we'll have to have you on again uh, sometime soon. Thanks for joining, man. Cheers, guys. Nice meeting you. You too. You too. Another huge thank you to Scott for taking the time out of uh, his busy, busy day to uh, jump on and talk with us a little bit more uh, about Wild Prospects. Uh, we're going to wrap up the show here just you know, looking back on the last couple of Wild games here as they return to play. Uh, the big story has been uh, Kellen Addison, who made his NHL debut on Tuesday, looked really good, was arguably actually the Wild's best player on the ice. Um, I didn't get to watch all of tonight's game, but um, you know, didn't have too many quarrels. Um, with how we played tonight, but uh, Zeke, Justin, let's get your guys' opinion here too. Uh, what are your first impressions of uh, Kellen Addison? You know, I, th- I think he was pretty solid too. I mean, I think he can show that he can move the puck very well. And I mean, obviously, it probably helped him that he, uh, you know, was playing on the top pair with Ryan Suter and even saw some, you know, as much as bad as the Wilds' power play was, he he did see some power play time, so uh, that was good. Yeah, I felt he looked really comfortable out there. I felt like. You know, a couple times he got burned, but he's got Suter as his D partner. But uh, you're seeing, like Zeke mentioned, him get power play time, and you're seeing, I feel, him just like, you hear that he was good at quarterbacking power play. You can kind of see see that that happen uh, when he was on the power play with Dumba the last game against L.A. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, he's looked really great on the power play so far. Um, I think for me, like if I had to criticize more or less one area of his game, um, and I think I saw it more so tonight than I did the other night, but basically for me, it's when he's defending particularly, it looks like he's sometimes slow to kind of make the read on who to cover, if he should take shooter, take pass. So I, th- and I think it's more, it's for me, it's probably just the, the pace of the game is a little bit faster, especially from, you know, he came out of juniors last year, has a, whatever, three games in the AHL and then he's jumping up into the NHL. There's going to be some some pace adjustment there for sure. Um, so I think for me, that's maybe one area where I'd look to maybe see improvement. Um, but obviously, I think coming next now with, it sounds like Susie and Hunt will both be coming back. So this might be the last we see of Callan Addison for this season, barring any more serious injuries. But I think it was really nice to just kind of get a glimpse of, of what there is to look forward to. Um, to clarify, if this being his last game, it's not because he's mm-hmm. playing bad. It just think it makes sense with Susie coming back having Hunt having Cole to I don't just, I just don't see yeah. Callum Addison as a fit um Ian Cole's played well um he's could maybe be an option over Hunt but um my guess is they would much rather have him playing mm-hmm. 20 minutes a night in Iowa um and getting power play time than you know 13 sheltered minutes yes. on the third pair Okay, and then uh, before we get into our players of the week, let's uh, quickly discuss just the Wilds' last two games as a whole. Uh, I think obviously, I think uh, Tuesday pretty much went as expected. They had seven guys in the lineup with twenty or fewer games of NHL experience. They looked slow out of the gate. Um, it sounds like there were players with residual effects. It wasn't something uh, of of COVID. I mean, and just mm-hmm. you know, not even played for two weeks. It, I mean, I, and then you know the the box score said four nothing, but. Honestly, I thought given the circumstances, it, it didn't look as it didn't feel quite as bad as that. Like it, it, it didn't feel like it was a game that necessarily deserved to win. But, you know, I think, you know, a, a two nothing score would have wouldn't have been surprising. But do you guys have any other takeaways from from the other night at all? No, I, I think you summed it up between. Uh, I mean, not too between not playing for a while and, and the residual effects from COVID. Like you mentioned, it's, I, I remember hearing <clears throat> some of the guys were, you know, having issues with you know, maybe their conditioning or their breathing or whatever, which is kind of expected with, with this virus. So, you know, figure it would take a, a little bit of time for them to get back and get their, their hands back and their lungs back. Yeah, I mean, not too many uh, surprises uh, for me either. I mean, I guess, like like Brett said, the second period of that game in L.A. was pretty decent. Uh, Wild had a few – they had some good chances in that game. But you know they obviously didn't score, and uh, you know I was saying, but no, no, no big uh, surprise in that game. But uh, but like you said too, I think four nothing uh, makes it look a little bit worse than it actually was. Yeah. So um, and then we just finished watching um, the recent game. Our uh, recording with Scott did run into a little bit of uh, the first period of tonight. So a really uh, back and forth evening for us here with drama and recordings working. But I think in the end we're going to get it all worked out. But um, 
I missed basically all of the first and while trying to figure out audio stuff, missed most of the second. Um, I saw the third, but I'll, uh, I'll let you guys take over here for uh, your takeaways from what, what you were able to see of, of tonight's uh, win over the ducks. Well, I guess I would say that uh, for me, it was, you know, it was obviously the first period that a couple goals, uh, Ryan Hartman was very good. I mean, you know, Brett said on Twitter, like with Hartman, he's kind of, you know, hot and cold like he's he can be really good for a few games and not so good but he had a you know he kind of forced a little bit of a turnover in the Anaheim zone in the first and had a nice snipe over the glove of Gibson for the goal and then had another bunch of other hustle plays in the first so he was good and uh you know obviously you know the other main thing is that you know the power play was technically they did score tonight I think officially but you know they had a lot of struggles again so that was obviously the big joking point and talking point on Twitter but uh you know, overall, I think it was, uh, you know, not too bad of a game. It was, uh, you know, and much better than, uh, than the last game. And I also thought that uh, Matt Sucarello, despite not getting on the score sheet, also was another uh, kind of player who was very solid today, too. Yeah, and I, uh, the Wild PR account just tweeted out here as we were uh, as we're recording um, a, a pretty solid game from a defensive standpoint tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, the team allowing just 17 shots on goal. Um, that's the first time that they've held an opponent to 17 or less shots dating back to um, looks like November 27th of 2018 versus Arizona um, where they held them to 14. So um, the one thing that is, you know, maybe not great, but a lot of the Anaheim shots did come from the aforementioned high danger area mm-hmm. kind of right on the right in front of the crease. But, um, you know, it was nice to see Capo Kakinen kind of do his job and make the saves he needed to save and for the team to play well in front of him and just get a couple goals. You know, I think this is more of kind of the games, you know, I expect out of the wild, kind of low scoring, shut down defensively. And it was cool to, you know, see him do this with with missing some guys and, um, you know, having injuries and not being at full health. It was it was nice to see him kind of pull out a victory mm-hmm. like this one tonight. And also always good to see Kevin Fiala get on the score sheet, no matter yeah. if it's, you know, wasn't maybe as dazzling as we've been used to. But um, we'll, we'll take the tap-ins when we can get them. Mm-hmm. All right, so nice to get back into the win column tonight. Um, we're all tired, so let's wrap this up here with our uh, players of the week. Justin, at the risk of dropping you out here uh, with our tech issues we've had out, we'll let you go first. You can give us both um, your amateur and your pro. So for amateur, one Adam Beckman, the former WHL MVP. Uh, he had three points in his first game, uh, four games in Iowa, scored his first career goal. And uh, got the overtime winner against Rockford last Saturday. Uh, he also registered seven shots on goal in the game, and you know he's showing that you know he's not afraid to shoot the puck. He did lead the WHL in shots last year by a wide margin, so you know he's just continuing what he did there. And then my pro of the week is the Minnetonka native who was originally drafted by Anaheim, a uh, 30 year old Carolina Demon, Jake Gardner. He had three assists this week and has six points in 14 uh, games played this season. So he's had a pretty good week overall with the three assists. Yeah, for sure. And the Hurricanes are a team that seem to be uh, kind of finding their stride as of late, winning some winning some big games. And Svechnikov and company are helping out our uh, fantasy squad as well. Mm-hmm. All right, Zeke, we'll go to you next. Uh, you can go with both your uh, amateur and pro of the week. Okay, so uh, for my amateur of the week, I'm going to go with uh, Iowa Wild goaltender Derek Barabow, who was signed by the Wild as an undrafted free agent uh, out of the QMJHL in 2017. And in, after uh, Hunter Jones had a not-so-great uh, first game, he kind of come in relief the last few games and played. He's 2 one one has a 1.94 goals against, a 9.20 save percentage. Uh, he's a big goalie at 6'6", 225 pounds. Uh, not really so sure. Uh when uh you know or what his potential is i guess the nhl level but you know early results are looking good and obviously he's got the size to be a professional goaltender and then for my pro i'm gonna go with uh with new york islanders uh, left wing anders lee uh former uh you know played at the university of notre dame and so far this year uh he has in 15 games played he has seven goals uh, three assists for 10 points uh, with the Islanders, uh, he's obviously the Islanders captain, and including this past week in uh, four games, he's had three goals and one assist. So, uh, just uh, another good week for him with the New York Islanders as well. Yeah, the uh, 
regrettably the Dino Boy, but uh, we'll give him a pass for being a cake eater for representing our state <laughs> on a national level. All right, and now for my amateurs and pro of the week. My amateur of the week uh, from Boston College is Matt Boldy. Had an absolutely massive game on Friday night, uh, putting up a goal and four assists, three of which uh, were primary or first assists for a five-point night in a 7-2 route over uh, UMass Lowell. Um, That puts Boldy up to, I believe it's 19 points in 15 games this season. Uh, Leads Boston College um, in points, which is pretty cool. Um, Three of the top four are wild prospects. It's Boldy, and then I believe Nestorenko was in third, and then McBain in fourth. It might be flipped. It might be McBain and Nestorenko. But either way, uh, the wild prospects in uh, at Boston College continue to produce um, on the number one ranked team in the country, which is awesome. And then last but not least, my pro of the week is another defenseman. Uh, this one, a former Carolina Hurricanes defenseman, Justin Falk, uh, who is now with the St. Louis Blues. He had a three-point night against the Arizona Coyotes last Friday. Um, I believe it was a goal and two assists. Um, which put him up to eight on the year, which is second on the Blues um, defenders, just behind Tory Krug. Um, and he's really had kind of a, a comeback year this year with uh, production. Him and Tory Krug have been really good as a pair, um, and he's been you know up there as one of the most valuable defenders in the NHL this year. His uh, one point, I believe it's one point two zero game score, is sixth among all uh, NHL defenders with a minimum of ten games played. So. Um, a guy that seemed to maybe be on the decline has bounced back rather nicely uh, to start the season so far uh, for St. Louis. All right. Okay. All right, guys, before we sign off, uh, any final thoughts on this uh, non-technology friendly day uh, for us here at Sound the Fox? Uh, <laughs> okay well uh you know uh, not you know too not too many uh final thoughts but you know just good to see the wild get back in on the win column and then obviously our uh, chat with uh, scott was really fun tonight so pre- again thanks to him for coming on the show and uh also uh, uh you know just i, I don't I, we have, i don't think we've confirmed this yet but i think we're planning to start our uh, 10 15 minute uh, pregame show before wild games probably this uh saturday for the wild and ducks game so uh, whenever we do start that, uh, doing those live streams, I believe on YouTube, uh, we'll, we'll post about it on Twitter. But uh, that's just something to, to keep in, keep on keep an eye out for uh, in the next few days as we start to get that rolling. Yeah, we're looking forward to that. Hopefully, it goes smoother than uh, what we had tonight. Uh, <laughs> Justin's having some technical difficulties, so uh, I will uh, sign off for him. You can find him on Twitter at d e a s t two thousand and four. Also at Kaprizov C for the Kaprizov Countdown, and then also uh, the admin over at uh, MNW Prospects. As for myself, you can find me on Twitter at B underscore Marsh92. Be sure you're following the podcast account both on Twitter and Instagram at Sound the Foghorn. And then, as Zeke mentioned, uh, also coming soon to YouTube as well. That link will be uh, probably out sometime tomorrow with more information. And then, Zeke, we'll let you uh, do the final sound off tonight with where to find you. Uh, yeah, you can uh, find me on Twitter at ZB Wild Nation underscore HW. And then you can also find uh, my writing and written work at hockeywilderness.com. All right. And that'll do it for tonight's episode. Uh, back with you uh, next week with a new show. This has been another episode of Sound of the Power.